Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, November 29th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor and an academician, gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the gospel lectionary for the coming Sunday. And this Sunday is December 4th, which is the second Sunday of Advent. Each Tuesday we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And, of course, for our friend Charles Willard, who dials in from Minnesota, that's 5.30 a.m. Our team is slowly working now. Slowly now. <laughs> oh boy, our team is working to be faithful to year A, and that puts us on the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works: we share perspectives independently. After the lead-off person shares an approach or formative questions in advance, and then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us. In today's discussion, Sarah Mickelson from Tampa, Charles Willard, Minnesota, Sewing, <laughs> Bill Hull, St. Petersburg, Florida, and Don Upton. And I'm traveling today. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And our lead for today is our friend Bill Hull. Hello, my friend. What's up? Good morning, team. I hope every one of us and those viewing and listening have a good Thanksgiving as we continue our journey through Advent. Now, because I'm going to do something a bit different this morning, I want to give some background, and then I will read the scripture, and we will go forward. First of all, we're in year A during Advent, and the lectionary in year A takes us on a rather circuitous and perhaps confusing journey in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week for Advent, week one, we read and reflected on the lectionary passage from Matthew 24. Jesus is calling his followers to be alert. This week for Advent 2, we're in Matthew 3. Week 3 will be for Matthew 11 and week 4, Matthew 1. <laughs> 24 We bounce around a bit in in Matthew. And today, we will encounter John the Baptist, who is introduced early in each of the four Gospels, chapter 1 of Mark and John, and chapter 3 of Luke and Matthew. So uh, in that sense, there's a parallel uh, in all four Gospels. Now, a background to the a different approach I'm going to take this morning. In my education experience, the most memorable final exam was in my last semester in seminary in a Hebrew class on one of the prophets. In the class prior to the exam, the professor told us that one-third of our grade would be a section we could not prepare for, but we were not to be concerned. But that that portion of the exam would be one-third of our grade. Uh, In the exam, that portion asked us to read in English a passage from that prophet that we had not reviewed in class. Then we were instructed to write as many questions as possible that the selection prompted, noting that the more questions we listed, the higher our grade would be. And the exam explicitly instructed us not to answer any questions. If we did, that would lower our grade. When I first read that 
question. I was perplexed trying to guess, is, is there some trick to this? But slowly I began to write a long list of questions. The professor reviewed the exam during the next class and noted that many students had very few questions. He explained his reason for that part of the exam. We were soon to be graduate theological students, and we were accustomed to giving answers, explanations, and interpretations in our sermons. He wanted us to grasp that those listening to us came to the experience with many issues, struggles, and questions in their lives. He encouraged us to engage Scripture with minds that were open, exploring, inquisitive, and curious so that we would encourage those we would serve to become comfortable with their puzzlements about Scripture and the life of faith. So I offer us the same challenge. What questions, confusions, curiosity are prompted in you by this week's passage? And then later, after I read it, I will ask us to share those questions. I'm not going to give a grade, (laughs) but I will encourage us. And I invite our viewers and listeners also, as I read this passage, pay attention to your questions about this story. Now, the passage, Matthew 3 Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, I read the Word of God from the New Revised Standard Version. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, saying, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when John the Baptist saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I'll admit that what I'm 
suggesting is unusual and a challenging departure from our custom process, but I invite us to give it a go. First of all, Sarah, how many questions did you come up with? I got eight. Eight. Don? I got six. Charles? I'll copy Don. Okay. And I got ten. Sarah, read your first question, and I'm going to pause a bit after you say it so we can let it hang in the air and in our minds and spirit. Your, read one of your questions. Read the first one. Can you think of music that echoes the theme presented in this passage? I'll give you a hint. Mine was, people get ready. There's a train coming. <laughs> Okay, now I'm 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 guessing, Sarah, that your interest in drama and music has an influence when you come to scripture. You think of an analogy to to music, right? What is what what do you think prompted that question for you? Um, I was thinking about my husband, and music is a big thing for him, and uh, and so I often. You know, he's not a person that necessarily knows the lyric, but knows the rhythm because he's a bass player. And so I always say, you know, you should pay attention to the lyrics because those are important too. And sometimes you think you've got a really good rhythm and you listen to the words and you go, oh, this is nonsense. Um, So for me, I, I just thought that song resonated so strongly with the way this passage travels. And uh, I really liked it. So um, I was thinking of that song while I was reading this passage? Well, I'm glad I went to you first, Sarah, because what you just said illustrates a part of what that professor said to us. We all come to any experience with our own life experiences and interests, and there's no right or wrong way to come, but we come differently. And I think this passage illustrates that at least John, I think, was questioning what were the different motives that brought people there and what was going on in their lives. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Don, read one or the first of your questions. I'll have to set it up. Okay. I'm thinking about, you know, a lot of folks who listen in are moderating classes and preparing discussions. So this one is meant to draw out something from everybody's heart. And uh, my question is, why so nasty? Mm. Okay. Excuse me, why so nasty or what? Nasty. <laughs> why so nasty? Right. I'm ready to explain myself, but that's the question. Okay. We're listening. All right. So if you're if, – if, if you were moderating a class, I think you probably get 20 to 30 to 40 answers like that, questions like that. Why so threatening? Why so violent, right? Why so? Mm. And I think it would be a good exercise because since we're dealing with English in this case, dealing with translations, you have to define what nasty means. 
Well, you have to dis- somebody goes, why so violent? Why you know the overarching impression is, and I so I pick nasty. But if I'm explaining myself, moderator would say, well, Don, tell me, why would you use the word nasty? Let's, let's look. <laughs> well, nasty means unpleasant to the senses. Right, that, that that's and this is and it's an admission. It's like this. If you take it in totality, there's an unpleasantness about this. I feel I have to back off. It's a, it's got I sense a nastiness in it, and uh, of course it opens it up for a great explanation of why I might be taking it in that way, and 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 we can unpack this as a group. So that's that's my first one. Why so nasty? Right. Well, I, I will springboard from that on my version of that was how does John's harsh message prepare us for Jesus' gentleness that what what's going on here and I think we're acknowledging there are statements in scripture that really rock us back on our heels uh, brood of vipers a bunch of snakes and the the religious leaders. So again, we are acknowledging that uh, in your word nasty, I think communicates better than my word harsh. It, it, I think you capture the spirit of it. This was <clears throat> a really painful, uh, impolite way to address people. Charles, read us one of your questions, please. Well, first, I just wanted to comment uh, using your own your own statement here. I don't get that it's such a, neg- a negative thing to set out here. That is, John John had invited these people to come and hear something he had to say, and he had to, and it was it was it was good information information they needed to have, and John simply commented on that and supported this. Not so. It's I don't I don't get it that he's coming after them with the same kind of of uh, harshness as this is being suggested that he might have. I just, I mean, otherwise, I mean, he, why would he do it? Why would he come out there like that if, if, if he was simply going to drive people away? Well, you're going to say, well, he was going to drive some people away that ought to be driven away. He shouldn't be there in the first place. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say this doesn't count for Pharisees, et cetera, et cetera. He's invited. In fact, they're invited to be there. They're behaving that way. Uh, my favorite, my first question actually had. I, I went actually to the first three words in in the in the, in the section that uh, we, we were taking out here. In those days, and my question is, what is it that's unusual about those days that that. And John didn't, he didn't, this is not a, a record of his sermon, so it's not, you know, John didn't say, now listen to me, I'm saying these things for you. This is a, a, a report that Matthew is providing for his own interpretive summary of this particular event that happened there. And it started out in, in, in he's, he's, see, he's giving he said, this is this is repent for the kingdom of heaven has become near to me, but I you know then you say okay so then how come they get dumped on in the later sections by a, another way of interpreting that? It's a great mystery. 
But it starts yes, out in very positive. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness in Judea proclaiming, repent. He didn't say, sorry, those of you who are Pharisees and, and Jebusites, et cetera, out there, and, uh, you, you know, this is not for you. Go away. He doesn't say that. Everybody who is there is invited to come down and to be, to be baptized. That's an open, a wide open invitation. And you shouldn't forget that when you find out what things are going to happen uh, for some of these other people. Very good. You're you're right. Uh, the timeliness of something is important in literature and whatever. Uh, why at at that juncture in time? Um, back for a moment to the question about harshness and nastiness. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on this passage, has a quote that captured my attention, and I wrote it down. A love that pampers injustice is not lovable. John wasn't pampering injustice. All right, uh, let's see. Um, I will read one of my questions, which really has two parts. Why, it's sort of like your timeliness question, Charles. This is a location question. Why was the ministry of John the Baptist in the wilderness? And where is my wilderness? Um, I don't know that I've ever really spent time in wilderness, depending on how you define it. I was a big backpacker for about a dozen years, hiked many portions of the Appalachian Trail, often leading high school and young adults through the Presbytery on a week-long backpacking trip, ending with uh, a day on the Chattooga River whitewater rafting. Yeah, I guess you could call that wilderness. Um, if it qualifies as wilderness, I, I tend to think of wilderness as a desert. Um, there is something different about being away from all the usual luxuries, amenities, um, etc. For example, this may sound silly, I love coffee. And uh, the first couple of trips, I took instant coffee. Yuck. I then went to Bill Jackson's. I, I assume it's still open here in St. Pete. That is an outdoorsman's mecca. And I found a small version of the kind of percolator I had seen growing up with a little glass top and a little thing. And I could make about two cups in that, and it was made out of aluminum. And I took it and had the ground coffee with me and would make fresh brewed coffee in the morning. Some of the youth even wanted some, so I allowed a little luxury. But for the kids, the first couple of nights were usually very disorienting. By the way, we parked the van at the ranger station where we would end up. And I made everybody put all their electronics and lock them in that van. If you want to know what disorients youth and young adults 
<laughs> take away their electronic devices. So it disoriented us tremendously. And yet my protocol was at night in a safe place. We camped by water. We would build a fire and sit in a circle. And I would simply invite them to talk about the day. And as the week progressed, some very profound things began to happen. And there were times that you said, you know, I've never done this. Uh, left to myself, I wouldn't have done it, but I'm beginning to discover some things about myself that I hadn't and maybe wouldn't discover any other way. Um, I don't have a definitive answer, but I, I have some at least limited awareness perhaps of why John went into the wilderness. Any other thoughts on wilderness? What is God calling? Yeah, what is God calling you to? And I, you know that I thought about this is um, you're being called away from Jerusalem, away from the temple system, away from the structures of power mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, away from all the things that you rely upon to give your life balance, security, some sense of sequence. Um calling you into the fresh air, into the open space, into relationship and and dependencies with God. So my question was, what is God calling you to? Instead of Mm. away from, because often in our modern times, the things that we're being called away from are are priorities like families and, and jobs and things like that that are responsibilities. And not necessarily the same level of disruption, but the things that we don't want to necessarily let go of. But what are we called toward? And and how does that manifest in Advent? I like that, Sarah. That's again back to coming to dealing with classes. I think that question, if you pair it with the wilderness, opens up for everybody. If we're patient with each other, I think yeah. we're asked we're asked to consider these things in this scripture. There are things, there are other areas. Sometimes we all get into disagreements about, you know, there's a specific point here that the scripture needs that needs to be brought out. In this case, I think I, I'd say for listeners, we're invited to be playful with this uh, because even with wilderness, if you're invited to wilderness, I, half the class might go, "Well, a wilderness is the absence of anything." What the thing is. Let's talk about that. A wilderness is a is an interesting place. I think for me, I don't know if I can get to the wilderness they have in mind. I, I hear Charles Willard's voice. It's like you don't know, and because I've got this problem, I, I'm living on top of the Romantic movement, 100 150 years ago, which treats wilderness and spaces in a very unique way, and then the modernist movement, where density and the life of cities is equated to insanity. I mean, is it good or bad? But it sure allows every individual to approach this. And I think that's why the writer of Matthew gives us these tangible things like what does the air feel like and what is wilderness like and what does walking feel like, that we can all talk about that with each other. Well, uh, it also gets at another question I have, but it, it's congruent. 
Everything about John seems to be counterculture. What he ate, what he wore, where he was, and your point, Charles, that the timeliness, his message, content, and tone, however you want to characterize the tone. And now my question was, how is the simplicity and asceticism of John the Baptist instructive for me today? And then I remembered, Later in Matthew, in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers not to worry about what they will eat, drink, or wear. <laughs> uh, so, I, again, none of us fully grasp this, and as Charles reminds us, we can't really know in the here and now what was in the mind of Matthew and John at the time, but we legitimately think of it in our time, it it does challenge our assumptions about what we need and what we're here for. Yeah. Charles, any thoughts about wilderness? Nope. That's not what I was looking for. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, about uh, uh what you were laying out about the details of John, let me just kind of layer in, because I think even if we're only three or four questions in and they're starting to come together, you know, thematically, and I just want to lay in there, I think there's a connection between the, uh, what Charles talked about this time, why that time and place was one of my questions, like why this person in this particular, particular time, and you're talking about the countercultural nature of John, and the more detail I get, I think class members would raise this, the more detail you get, the more time and place questions I have. Why is this even necessary? The more you give me details, what he ate, one person in the wilderness in a particular time, why is this man even necessary? Mm. In the shadow of Jesus Christ. What, why is it for what one man necessary? Really? God has come for us? Jesus has come to save us? And we need this? I'm raising that, I think, as a legitimate question, but also it creates counterpoints. Uh, Sarah even raised music, uh, so I'm going to use counterpoint as an analogy in terms of that, too. So I just wanted to layer in that other point. You talking about the details of this man and what he's wearing, really? Really? I I can give you a couple of reasons. We need a herald. We need an Elijah. This person steps into that role. We need a fulfillment of the scripture that was promised in Isaiah. We need to have that, if you will, counterpoint to wake us up, if you will, and invite us to, to you've got to come see Jesus. I mean, we're going to hear this in the voice of the disciples shortly. You've got to come see him. I think I found him, the Messiah. You've got to come see. I'm thinking of Philip, you know, that sense of, of of here we are, we're at that moment. This is that moment God's been waiting for. This is that moment. So I think we need a herald. Well, and it's interesting to me that we're already demonstrating that we've come up with similar questions. My version or my edition of your question, Don, was, in fact, it was my first question. Why did Jesus need someone to prepare the way for him. Of all people, why does the eternal Son of God, Son of Man, need that? Now, 
I'm going to illustrate where our mind goes. I'm not saying this is a great illustration of that. At one point in my ministry, I was called to serve Sefner Presbyterian Church out near Brandon. It was a redevelopment. The church had gone through difficult times, and we had five years of financial support. We went off support before the five years, and that church still thrives. Now, not my predecessor, but some years before me, they'd had a minister who had retired and lived in Tampa. And I had invited him to come, and he wouldn't. And several years later, his son called, and his father's health was failing. And he said his father wondered if one more time, he could come to the church. And I said, of course, and we'd love to have him preach or pray. No, he wouldn't do it. So he came, his son brought him, I introduced him. And uh, part of the backstory to this is one of the reasons I agreed to go there was there, while the numbers had greatly reduced, there was a strong core of people who were really committed to ministry. Anyway, after the church, I'm standing up, at the plat the porch at the back of the sanctuary outside having greedy people and down on the ground level there were about fifteen people circled, literally circled around this pastor, and as I walked up they were rehearsing. You you were there when my mother died, you you did our marriage, you and, and they were telling him what he had meant to them. And I stood back within earshot, and I thought, I am building, hopefully, on the foundation he laid. He, he was a great pastor and loved people. And I thought, I, not that I thought I was doing it alone, but I just had that sense of a great cloud of witnesses and that someone had prepared the way, and hopefully I could continue that. So it, it, it's just a reminder that it's not just one person. Even the Son of God, for whatever reason, needed someone to prepare the way for him. And I think what you emphasize, Sarah, is certainly biblical and appropriate. All right. Um, I find this exciting. Sarah, another one of your questions, please. What are the modern equivalencies to ancestry that we're often using as security systems in this modern time? <laughs> okay. Great question. You're, you're referring to John's reference. Don't claim to be a child of Abraham uh, as if that heritage saves you. And, and then he goes on to say, what is it, from stones? What, let me see. Yeah, that get uh, these stones to raise up children of Abraham? Yeah. You talk about exaggerated imagery. How are stones? Luke 19, where he says, Tell, I tell you, he answered, if they remain silent, even the stones themselves will start to sing. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Uh, your, your, read your question again, Sarah. I liked your wording. What are the modern equivalencies to ancestry, which are often used mm-hmm. as systems in our time? And one of my responses would be denominationalism. You know, I'm a fourth-generation Presbyterian. So what? <laughs> um, or, I, or I have all the wealth in the world. I don't need to go and deal with that. Right. I don't have to be polite. I don't have to mind the social norms. I don't have to behave in, a, in a, what I would con- consider a kind way because I have all the money in the world. Well, Don, Charles, any thoughts on modern equivalents of ancestry? Yes. I want to share a headline and an article by um, the Christian – it's in the Christian century, but this is by Jimmy Carter. Okay. Uh, We can't read it, Charles, so – yeah, I was I just going to read the first paragraph here. Many of you okay. may be asking why a former politician is giving a Bible lecture in an assembly of highly qualified Christian leaders. My only credential is, is experience. I've been in a quandary about what subjects is discussed. I've decided to use one of the letters of St. Paul that addresses the most serious blight that presents itself among Jesus, believers in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. The visions within the powerful river of faith that are dividing us into swirling eddies and meandering tributaries. The divisions and even animosities are a cancer that metastasized within the body of Christ, assessing us with the visions of ministry and presenting the world a negative image of Christians. So I... I, I, I this was something... That is, if you could mute your Zoom, please. Oh, well, sorry. Well, it will sometimes unmute itself, Charles. <laughs> there you go. Is that better? All yes. Right. In any case, this this is something that simply fell into my hands when I was reviewing what might be up for today, and I pulled it out, and it struck me that here's a, a message from from our past. This was in, let's see, nineteen. 2005, that's a long enough time ago to have matured, I think, and I think it speaks well for us. It's probably it now, for example. Yeah, it, I think President Carter was right on. Right on. Uh, we well know uh, this dividing among Christians is very contemporary. A major denomination now is going through a two-way, maybe eventually a three-way split. Yep. Good question, Sarah. Um, I will offer another one of mine. John the Baptist said he gave a water baptism for repentance, but that the one who would follow him would baptize quote, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Are there two baptisms? What does it mean to be baptized 
with the Holy Spirit and fire. And as I kept rereading the passage, I noticed that the word fire appears three times. In verse 10, uh, every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, verse 11, which I quoted, a baptizing with the Holy Spirit in fire. And then in verse 12, the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire, uh, a powerful, in some ways, destructive imagery. So are there two baptisms, and what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in fire? And also it occurred to me, at least in my simple mind, there's a paradox, fire and water. We use water to quench a fire. So uh, it's just the playfulness about water baptism and yet baptized with fire. Um, I don't know. I'm still puzzled over this one. Actually, I don't think there are two baptisms, but John seems to say there are sequentially two different baptisms. I have a thought I'll throw into this mix, and I'm going to quote, okay. I'm going to quote Neil deGrasse Tyson. You matter unless you multiply yourself by the speed of light squared, and then you is energy. <laughs> My thought being that being baptized by the Holy Spirit and by fire means you're going to be filled. You're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. And you're going to contribute your energy into the growth and the spirit for others. So um, fire being a consuming energy, something that would transform the original to the energy of the whole group or the warmth, the heat of the whole group. I'm thinking of fire from that perspective rather than a retaliatory experience like going to hell. You know, we imagine this place, this inferno of Hades, and and there's this sense of that it has judgment associated to it, and I'm not sure that we have that in this passage. I think that the baptism by spirit and fire will be to God's purposes and that we will grow or transform to something that will feed or give energy to everybody else. Okay. So you see it as an equipping and enabling, uh, an empowering experience. Right. For the purposes of God, for the the growth of the story and the the connection of the message. Right, right. Uh, Don, any thoughts on this? Uh, just to kind of cut across all the questions, uh, I think for class facilitators and moderators, it's probably a little prayer in order before this begins to be accepting of the mm-hmm. question. I, I went with nasty just to make that point. Uh, and and I think the duality of the baptisms, you know, the, we could we could throw in our own theologies, Christologies about are there two baptisms? It, it's like accept the question. And what I've learned uh, because of what I do for a living is to prepare for that kind of conversation. There really are no more than five to ten questions anyway, and everything falls under those. And so you can actually anticipate 
what the questions are in terms of harshness, wilderness, baptism, yeah, uh, the individual in time, just and everything else. There's 50 other questions that fall after it, but I think it gives the class some organization. Uh, and I want to just throw in, Bill, one more that I think is often in the hearts of folks that are coming back to this every year is, is, is someone threatening me here? I'm not asking. It's like, am I being, am I being threatened here? You know, and it, it leads to a great discussion and some wonderful answers. Uh, but you have to go to your, to your methodology, Bill. You have to go there and create an environment where people know it's okay. You go, you know, I, I just felt a little threatened here. Why would I feel threatened? What is it intended to do? Which invites us to uh, disclose our own readings and misreadings. Thank you. And by the way, Don, I was listening to you, but it just occurred to me, because we're taking a different approach, I'm not mindful of the time, so I'm going to trust you. I doubt that we can go over all the questions. You, you will. Oh, we've uh, got time. Let... One more. Okay. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't have the usual. Uh, mile markers <laughs> that I'm yeah. used to. So, okay. Uh, let me move to one that I, for me, was the most important question coming out of this. And it goes back to your characterization of the nastiness. Are there times or circumstances in our world, in the here and now, when the church or individual believers need to speak in John's style when he called the religious leaders, you brood of vipers. Now, I think there are. Acknowledging the risk of self-righteousness, the risk of becoming the scribes and Pharisees that John spoke so harshly to me. An example. Recently, Phil and I were having a meal here with a retired Methodist minister, and we were all lamenting together the conflict and division going on among our Methodist brothers and sisters. And he made a, at first, surprising statement to me, but then we discussed it, and I saw his point. He said, However, as sad and as unnecessary as I think this division is, not all dividings among Christians are bad. He said, for example, the Methodist church split in the North and South in early on in the Civil War, and he said, I think they needed to. Slavery was evil, and the Northern church said it is not biblical, we cannot abide that. Now, I had never thought of that. Are there times that we need to risk even division among Christians? And Sarah, you are in the class, Sunday school class, Sunday, so you heard me say this. An example for me is a modern day, quote, Christian white nationalism, or the prosperity gospels. Um, 
I I won't. <laughs> I don't have a platform, but I sort of identify with John the Baptist saying, "You brood of vipers." That's not what Jesus Christ is about. That's not what we're called to do. So, are there times and circumstances in which we need John's style? I will listen to my brothers and sisters respond. My question was similar, but not the same. For a mature wheat, the chaff has served its purpose and is no longer needed for the wheat to grow. Mm. Wheat needs liberation from the chaff or energy from the burning of chaff to be transformed. What aspects have been outgrown in your faith journey that might you might need to let go of, like chaff. And I, I, I think you're right. I think there's there's moments where we go, is that a necessary piece of luggage for me to carry on? Mm. Do I need that for this journey? Can I lay it down? Or can I let it go? Um and it, it might be, you know, that we need to to see what's valuable to the growth of the kingdom of heaven and what's not valuable to the growth of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not sure that, uh, that we aren't asked to question that daily, but especially during Advent. You know, I, I, love, mm-hmm. I love the work of the editor, the editor's job is to make the language as powerful as it could be, but also as spare as it could be. Mm. And I, so sometimes the punch of the language is more valuable than the volume of the of the message <laughs> of the quantity of the words. So, you know, I'm I'm thinking about those particular moments that have been profound for me. And and oftentimes I am challenged, like you are, to go, when do you need the John the Baptist tone? And when do you need the, the voice of God whispering at the front of the cave? And when when mm. do you those pieces, how do those fit with your approach and your Advent experience? I liked your juxtaposing. I assume you were referring to Elijah, the still small voice, and then the voice of John the Baptist. God speaks in both voices. There's a whole sermon there. (laughs) God speaks in a number of voices. Now, real quickly, and I want to hear from the others, I just looked at my notes, and again, Frederick Dale Bruner reminds us that Jesus used this phrase, brood of vipers, in Matthew 12 and Matthew 23, he refers to the scribes and Pharisees as snakes and vipers. Mm. Jesus spoke in the same way. Don, your thoughts? I think there's a caution here not to be like John as well. Uh, John is, and the way I'm approaching this is John is inviting people to an empty place, to a wilderness, to separate themselves from their lives, 
their love of ancestry, which we all have, the love of identity, and the desire to know, the desire to have the answers, uh, which every, I think everybody can walk into that desert and be confronted with. And so I'm just going to put some, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm putting some distance between the catalyst, the analyst, the preacher, uh, who, whether it's uh, abrupt and harsh language or whether it, it promotes what today we would call Christian discernment in terms of our role, that that's, this is a very individual thing. And to Sarah's response to what I said is, you know, why do I have to deal with this man? You know, why can't I face face with Christ? I think the answer is maybe you're not able to do that, that you need a brother and a sister uh, to be able to listen to, that you need to put yourself on myself and every assumption that I may make, any boldness I may have. And you're talking about a bold stand, Bill. That I'm, mm-hmm. I'm to set that aside and just and, and listen. Uh, and I think this is applied to Advent. It is, a, it is a harsh, nasty Advent, isn't it? That, you know, I, yes. I would put these words, which is like, well, I'm going to begin the season in a week, not not now. I'm going to begin this holiday season, not till the 15th. So we're going to start early this year. I know, actually, this verse tells me I, I, I that's a ridiculous thing to say if I believe in the Advent story. Uh, the Advent has begun. Advent is happening. And he's using harsh language to go, this, this is happening right now. One man in time, standing there, in, the, in an absent, in place absent of a lot of stuff, is letting me know it's already happening. Uh, and I don't know if I have anything to say to that, except, you know, I, I don't get to choose. Advent's happening, and there's baptism taking place, and off we go. So I'm just <laughs> not disagreeing with you, but I'm, 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 this is more of a scripture of standing down than standing up for me. Uh, an, right. unprepared, an unpreparedness for Advent uh, is what I'm confronting. And we've got about a minute more, Bill, so you can wrap up in any way you work. My last comment would be one I think could make a case in Scripture that not everybody's called to be a prophet. <laughs> so <laughs> we may need to make sure if we're going to speak like John the Baptist, the Lord is really calling us. Thank you, colleagues, for what I found to be a very engaging conversation, and I hope it will be helpful to our listeners and viewers. Thank you. Thank you. And for those listening in, Palmacy of Presbyterian Church that makes this podcast possible is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. For more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We always commend that to you. For other studies, um, messages, outstanding sermons, wonderful music, opportunities to take communion. So check that out. And you're always welcome. And we'll see you next time.